There's no way around it. Caring for a loved one with dementia is not for the faint of heart. We don't know what we don't know, and many families focus so much on the person with dementia that they forget to keep their eyes on the family member managing care, which can be catastrophic. In this podcast, we'll help you become more proactive and remind you to focus on yourself. We will share challenges and wins and guidance from professionals at every step in the journey of caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's and other dementias. Welcome to the Eye on the Caregiver podcast. We're delighted to have with us today Dr. Brittany Lamb, an ER physician and dementia family care advocate. So, um, Brittany, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you to the place where you are with your business. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like you said, I'm an emergency medicine physician. I've been an attending, so practicing, you know, independently for about five years now. And I, um, I've always had a passion for people who are aging and I did research when I was in medical school and had a family member. Also, my grandmother lived with us when I was growing up, she had vascular dementia. So I've kind of always had this passion for aging folks. I find them very interesting, teach you so much, um, like time capsules of history, their expertise and experience is invaluable to us. So I've always just had that interest. And then you know, going through my career in medicine, I've found that it's really challenging for people to make sure that their values and their preferences are identified and then that that lines up with the medical treatment and care that they get. And so being in, in the emergency department, it's a very chaotic, hectic environment. I've found that people really haven't planned for their future in many cases. I mean, maybe they did advanced directives, maybe they have some sort of legal planning, but but there was never any real detail planning done and their overall like values and wishes haven't always been identified. And people who are aging are at risk of having situations in which they cannot speak for themselves when they're sick. That's very, very common and it can happen to all of us, but it happens more as we get older. People have a risk for that. And I found that people who are living with dementia, they're at even higher risk and their caregivers, their family members are, in most instances are making their medical decisions. And then they're completely caught off guard and they feel overwhelmed and guilty um, and, and paralyzed, not able to make decisions. And so I saw this need for more support and education and decided to come online and try to help people with this um, and also kind of create a business out of it as well. So that's what I'm here doing, um, educating and supporting family caregivers and how to navigate medical decision making for their person with dementia. I love it. Um, as you and I had talked about, you know, um, what a week or two ago, you know, we talked that in the past we have at our foundation have done some work in training emergency room staff. Um, the reason was because we saw a lot of caregivers had this overwhelming stress that was related to bringing their loved one to the hospital, um, because they felt like an emergency room situation, you know, they're there to to fix or, or look for emergent issues and not necessarily dealing with the dementia, right. And, and the communication. And so, you know, we are not, you know, we, we understand that and, and we've seen it a lot. And I just wonder like from it's, I love your perspective because you're seeing it from the other side. So do you see like the overwhelming stress on the caregivers faces when they're put in this situation before they even get to the medical directives or the medical things, it's just simply asking simple questions of their loved one that might not be able to answer. Absolutely. 
there's a lot of issues with coming into the hospital or the ER as a person living with dementia. Uh, oftentimes, staff doesn't realize the person has dementia. And if a person is able to have a conversation and has still has retained that ability to have somewhat of a social, like a normal conversation back and forth, and they still have that ability, we can very easily miss that that person even has dementia. Because a lot of times you can't tell until you're with someone a few times and they start to ask you the same question or you realize they're not comprehending what you're telling them. Um, so yeah, caregivers are usually, they're, if they come, which I love when they come, oftentimes I have to call them. And with COVID, everything got more complicated with that. But they usually are very anxious over, I can tell though they're anxious over trying to communicate with me that this person cannot make their own decisions and that they really are the one that needs to give me the story and the history. And myself as a physician have become very sensitive to that and very, uh, I've, I've realized it more because I've been doing this work in this space, but I don't think ever, I don't think everybody does. And I also think that a lot of times the other positions of people working in the emergency department so techs that come in and hook people up to the monitor, they do EKGs, they put in IVs, they help people get to the bathroom. Um, and then nurse, nurses do more bedside care as well as techs do. They don't often know how to approach the person. And so having the caregiver there to help is always helpful. But yeah, it's, it's really challenging for caregivers. Um, I, I definitely see them being stressed, which is part of the reason why I'm here too, is help, trying to help people understand what we do in the ER and kind of some ways to make it less stressful. Um, it's busy in there. It's loud. The sickest patients get the most attention. So, you know, we can't always be in the room redirecting someone and, and helping them, you know, every time that they don't know where they are. So having a caregiver there is really, really helpful. You know, it's interesting that you say that about not necessarily recognizing people have dementia. Cause I know with, with our dad, and I would suspect that this is not uncommon, especially when they're in the early stages of dementia. He was very good at masking his his issues. Like he knew he was forgetting. He knew he was um, really kind of forgetting important stuff. But he was just really able to kind of work the conversation around it and and kind of mask it. So I can. Exactly. And he was. I mean, and I would notice that knowing that he had issues. I I noticed that. And so if you're if you're a physician and someone comes in, you, I can definitely see that. So when yeah. you when you start talking about like people coming in or, or you know kind of dealing with medical issues and all the stress of being a caregiver, you know the, these caregivers basically live in firefighting mode and crisis mode uh, all the time. And you know one of the goals of our foundation is to help empower families with information so they can be more proactive. So when and I know that you've put together some really valuable resources. So. One of the things I wanted to ask you specifically about and really focus on is, you know, five steps for medical decision makers. Uh, so if you could go through that, that would be great. Yeah. So I created a free audio training on this. So if anyone wants to listen to it in detail, you can go to my website and it will be emailed to you. You just put your, put your email address in it and it'll come to you and you can listen to it as many times as you want. But I created this training to give people a foundation and a framework for how they can become a competent medical decision maker for their person. Um, I know that caregivers wear a lot of hats. And so being a medical decision maker is just one small part of it. But I know that this education could be super helpful. So that's why I did this. 
Um, but the first, the first step is really like understanding what your role is as a caregiver and kind of working on the way that you see yourself. It's, it's a mindset type thing. Um, and I talk about the main rule of being a caregiver is that you have to speak for the person as they would speak for themselves, knowing that if they didn't have dementia and they had a healthy brain, they would be able to learn and they would be able to adjust the decisions that they make over time. Just like you're able to learn and adjust decisions. The person with dementia would be able to do that and you have to speak for them as if they could. Um, so always speaking for the person like they would speak for themselves. Step number two is that in order to make confident decisions, you do need to have a baseline understanding of where you're coming from, what documentation may have been put together for your person. So advanced directive. So I tell people you have to go and search for any documentation of what your person may or may not want. Um, and then you have to read that stuff and understand what it means and what holes are left over for you to fill in your information and knowledge because advanced directives 100% do not cover everything. If they did, I wouldn't even need to be here. The advanced directives and the way that we try to do medical planning and helping people uh, direct their healthcare in advance, it's not really working on a logistical level, which is why I've come into this space of education. Um, but it is important because they can be helpful. So gathering those documents uh, is important. And then also part of that you could kind of say too is talking to other people that may have talked to them about what's important to them in their life if they're no longer able to do that with you. Um, step number three is about goals of care. And when I talk about goals of care, I think we're going to maybe talk about this in a little bit. Maybe we'll be able to talk. I can flesh it out a little bit more. But it's basically a big picture overview of how aggressive your person wants their care to be. What would their decision be based on what their quality of life is like? And I teach goals of care online and in a class I've created and also in my course. This is foundational. Like every medical decision that you make for someone has to go back to their goals of care to reflect on that and make sure we're doing the right thing. Step number four is you have to gather your person's medical history. So you can't forecast out what they're at risk for and start planning for what their future might look like from a medical perspective if you don't understand their past medical history. So this is what they've been hospitalized for, what surgeries they've had, even, even joint pain, like even having a shoulder replacement or a knee replacement could be potentially helpful for you to know. Uh, all their medications, allergies, you need a complete big picture person, like a viewpoint of your person, uh, an overview. And it helps you be a little bit more objective. Um, and I, you know, I always feel, I always feel bad about talking to people about being emotional and making decisions for their family members, but it is challenging to make decisions when you do them based on emotion. And that's, you know, as a physician, I help people try to navigate that. But if you don't have an understanding of your person's general health, you're not, you're going to struggle to make decisions for them in a lot of cases. And then step number five is all about educating yourself. So it's learning about your person's medical problems, what they look like, what they look like when they get worse. Can they cause someone to need to be hospitalized? If they're hospitalized, can they cause severe disease like critical illness, needing critical care treatments like what we do in the intensive care unit? Um, would, could these diseases or conditions cause problems that would result in treatment that would prolong their life? maybe prolong their life artificially. Um, so it's, it's education about the diseases that they are, that they have, what dementia looks like as it gets worse, depending on what type of dementia, what type of disease they have that's causing dementia. And then I want people to learn how these things are treated. 
You have to learn how these conditions are treated at home, in the hospital, and especially when someone becomes very critically ill so that you can make a plan for whether or not those treatments line up with your person's goals of care now and in the future. So those are the those are the five steps. It's a lot, but it's foundational information that people, I think if people work through this, they can create their own medical care plan. And then if they want to come work with their physician or someone like me, they can do that also. Well, it's funny when you, I'm listening to this and I'm going, okay, I'm, I just turned 56 and man, I need to do all that <laughs> yeah. and I'm healthy, you know, but uh, you yeah. know, I think I have an advanced directive. Um, I have power of attorney, but you know, goals of care. Like I don't, I don't have that, you know, there's a number of things that I don't have. And the other thing I get kind of going back to step one, which I find is so critical and you, you may need, may need, may even need backup for this is, um, you know, your, your caregiver has to be with the, has to be able to understand what the doctor's saying. And a lot of times, you know, and I know in the case of, in our family, and even in the case of myself where I, I, I had a heart attack like seven years ago. And, you know, I just remember sitting there when the doctor's telling me in the emergency room, what's going on. Um, I'm like, I had to get on the phone and, and call somebody and say, look, you need to listen in. Cause I, I don't know if yeah. I'm hearing everything. Cause I'm sitting 100%. there like, and, and I know in the case with our parents, you know, my mom would go to the doctor and we'd come back and say, like, so what happened? And she couldn't explain any of it, you know? So we yeah. had to start going to the doctor with her just to have almost like a court reporter, just kind of writing everything down in a non-emotional way because the whole process is very emotional. And sometimes it's very difficult to, to interpret what, to, or even ask follow-up questions as a doctor saying something. And if you're, if you're emotional, you don't ask those three or four other questions after that, that need to be asked. 100%. Absolutely. It's, it's such a tough situation. Um, there's, you know, there's people out there, geriatric care managers and case managers and support, um, like patient advocates. There's a whole push and belief that, you know, every person that comes into the ER, to the hospital, to the doctor really needs someone else there with them. We all do. I mean, you think about when you're delivered bad news, like when you were told that you were having a heart attack or however that went down for you, you cannot take in information. It is incredibly challenging to do that. So when we're sick and we're trying to make decisions for ourselves, we need help. And someone who has dementia definitely needs help, but their caregiver needs help, like you're like you're saying. And I think that's what's so great about, I feel so silly saying this, but so great about the internet because you know I can create, what I've created is an online course that teaches all of these concepts these medical concepts so that people can listen to it on their own time. They can rewind it. They can listen to it as many times as they want. And then they, then I also teach them like the questions that they need to ask in these types of situations so that when something happens, they've heard it before and they have more of a foundational knowledge. So yeah, it's, it's incredibly challenging to take in all this information in the moment if you're not in medicine and most people aren't. Yeah. Well, thank you for all that work you do. It's, it's awesome. I'm here for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, we, we ran through a couple of situations when um, our dad had dementia, he was living in memory care. We ran through situations where like my mom passed out in the bathroom for some unknown reason. I was on my way following the ambulance to the hospital and I got a phone call from the memory care saying my dad fell, cracked his head open 
and they were taking him to the emergency room. And I'm like, oh my gosh, can you, can you send him to this particular hospital? Because I'm on my way and I don't know how to do this any other way. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think about, um, just the overwhelming stress, you know? And so as a, as a, just not an adult child, but look at the spouse who might be the caregiver, you know, to their spouse and you're expected to have all this information on their past medical history and their medications and all this when you go, but you don't take that with you. And in the minute that you're there in the moment, I, I see this with my mom now, as she's gotten older, you don't necessarily think about some of the medical history because in your mind at that moment, it's not relevant. Like he fell and we should be focusing on the fact that he fell. What does it matter that he had prostate cancer or whatever, you know? So I always feel so bad for physicians because I feel like they don't get all the information and they're trying to work with people with just fragments of information. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when you, when you have a situation like that, what you're saying makes perfect sense. I mean, what's relevant to that situation from their medical standpoint, that's one issue we're dealing with. And, you know, knowing what medications he's on, if he could have fallen because something's wrong with his heart or something happened with his brain, like we're thinking about all of those things and what piece, what pieces of his history are relevant to that presentation. But when, when I ask people to do this work and understand this, it can help in situations like that because you will, you will have done this work and gathered all this information that you can better able organize for yourself so that you can spit it out when needed. But this is also a separate, a separate situation in which we're trying to forecast out the person's likely problems that they're going to have in the future and then talk about what treatments they would want if those things happen. And some of that is falling and, and passing out. Like those are very common things that happen with dementia. People lose consciousness and pass out for medical reasons or because they fall. Um, so yeah, I think that it is overwhelming in the moment to like, when we're asking you to, to tell us all the history. Um, and, and we know that. So that's the other thing too. We, we understand that you can't know everything and that you're not going to be perfect and like a robot able to spit all this stuff out, which is why it's so important that if you can keep going to the same hospital, you can and make sure that when they triage you and in, in the ER and then if you're staying in the hospital, that that medical history is accurate, that it's up to date and accurate because it is very helpful. I can see a, like a lot of the history for patients. And so I don't ask their family members to go through everything. I just talk about what's relevant in the situation. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. Can we um, can we spend a little time talking about advanced directives and power of attorneys? Um, you know, this is like an obvious thing, but I feel like I have to say it anyway. And I just want to make sure that people understand there's two different power of attorneys. You can have a financial power of attorney and you can have a medical power of attorney. So what we're talking about is the medical power of attorney. And you mentioned, you know, very early on that it, these things don't cover everything. So from the perspective of the physician, you know, I think a lot of people, in, in fact, I know a lot of people even my age, are going online and pulling down like legalese documents for an advanced directive or a power of attorney and going and, get, and getting it notarized and thinking they're good to go. Um, can you talk to that a little bit and like yeah. what's what's missing and and what do we need to know? Yeah. So, so the spirit of advanced directives is basically the history of it and the spirit of it is telling us 
when someone likely would not want to continue to have critical care. So say you have a devastating medical issue, bad car accident, or you have terminal cancer, or you have a heart attack and now your heart isn't working anymore and you're really, really sick in the ICU and we're doing maximal medical treatment and things just aren't going well. The traditional kind of way of thinking about advanced directives is helping us know what you would want if you were in a situation like that. So a lot of times advanced directives are going to be worded towards when, when to like not when to stop care in a way. So the care's usually already been started and we're thinking about when to stop it. Something else that advanced directives often talk about is if somebody has a significant underlying medical problem and wording that advanced directives often use is, are things like an end stage condition, a terminal condition. Um, they'll say things like that. If somebody has that, then they wouldn't wanna be put on a ventilator or have artificial nutrition. Those are the, like being put on a ventilator, um, so a machine that breathes for you and takes over all of your work of breathing and artificial nutrition are the most common things that I see written in advanced directives. I do have to tell you all that I often don't see advanced directives in the emergency department. They, they oftentimes don't come with a patient. These days, we're getting a little bit better about having people have them uploaded into our computer systems. And in our computer system in the hospital that I work at, I am able to click on a button and see any advanced directives that are on file and go back and read them. Um, but advanced directives are not, they don't tell me what to do in the moment. So if you roll into the emergency department and you are really sick, first off, if you're really sick, stuff is going to get done to you unless I have a do not resuscitate order form. And a do not resuscitate order form is not an advanced directive. That's a medical order form. It's a medical document. Like a lawyer can't do that for you. Um, so you will start getting resuscitated and then we might look at your look at your um, advanced directives like once things are stable and I can go look at the computer because I'm not going to leave your bedside if you're critically ill. So there's logistical issues with this, but um, unless we have that do not resuscitate order form, we're going to start care and do not resuscitate only come into play if someone does not have a pulse and is not breathing. So that's the only time you can use a DNR. So that, that is not a helpful tool when someone's critically ill, but is still alive, right? They still have a pulse. They're still breathing. They're just really, really sick. So my issue with advanced directives is they don't tell me what to do. And for people who have dementia, if they have the ability to make medical decisions, I personally think that they should, that they should look at all the things that they're at risk for and then their person with them, their caregiver, that they should look at the way those things are treated and come up with an action plan for each one of those conditions. Depending on what their goal of care is now and what their what their goal of care would be in the future if their quality of life got worse. So the advanced directives don't cover every treatment option that's involved in critical care. So they sometimes will talk about the intubation and being put on a ventilator, artificial nutrition, but they don't talk about masks that we put on people's face to give them a ton of oxygen. They don't talk about medications that we put in the IV to change the rhythm of your heart. They don't talk about pacing someone. So like fixing the rhythm of their heart through electricity. There's just so many things they don't cover and it's impossible to do so really because they're legal documents drafted by attorneys. Like they're, that's not what they're designed to do. They're really helpful when we know that someone's not going to get better. It helps us know whether or not they would want us to continue this type of care until it doesn't work anymore. 
um, or withdrawal care. So it's it's challenging to talk about. Um, I, is, is that sparking any questions that you guys want to ask me? I think my only question would be, you have to physically have that document with you. So if it's not something that the emergency department has seen because you've been in there in the past and you don't have that on you, you can't just verbally, I can't just verbally tell you he doesn't want nutrition. Maybe if I had a power of attorney, but do you know what I mean? Like me as a family member, can I tell you? um, Yeah, you can if you're the medical decision maker legally. So either the, the medical power of attorney um, or you're the legal decision maker by default because the person never that declared who they wanted to make medical decisions for them. And that is going to vary per state. In Virginia, it's the spouse and then adult children, their parent if they're alive, and then a sibling and then down from there. But there is a designated person legally if no one was designated on paper. And I'll tell you that logistically, when someone rolls into the ER and is super sick, I do what I can to kind of stabilize them. And then if there's someone that I recognize has severe underlying disease and has a poor likelihood to recover, poor likelihood to regain any quality of life, if they have dementia, if they're of advanced age, I am searching for someone to help me make medical decisions. I'm actively looking for that person. I need to talk to them. And usually I can tell if this person's involved in their care because they know what's been going on. They know the situation. Um, And so it is great to have the medical power of attorney form um, if you can, but we know that that doesn't always happen. And what what often happens is that we make decisions with the legal decision maker. And and sometimes I, I do have to say, well, we need to get on the phone and talk to all of your siblings because you know, none of you has been declared medical power of attorney. And if you were all disagreeing and I can't, then it puts, it puts us into a legal situation in which we could become after if we don't provide care to somebody because we didn't go to their default, like legal decision maker. Um, so I usually try to make sure everybody's on the same page. If we're talking about not continuing aggressive care, that's going to prolong someone's life. If everyone's on the same page, then we can make decisions. But if they're not, then there's more conversation that needs to be done. And the standard of care in medicine is to do things to keep people alive. So the, the one thing, you know, going back to your five steps and the one that keeps coming to mind, and I'd like to just maybe touch on a little bit, maybe give an example, is this goals of care, right? So yeah. what you know, give it, if you could give us a little example of what that means and, and what families should be focusing on. Yeah, so I teach that there are three categories of goals of care. And we can all pick a category for ourselves and you can help your person with dementia choose theirs or you can choose on their behalf. And so the first category is full treatment. And that means that you're going to get everything done to you, including CPR, including being put on a ventilator, maximal medical treatment until it fails. The second goal of care is some but not all treatment, and that's going to vary per person which treatments they are and are not okay with. Most people will drop into that category by default if they if they have a do not resuscitate, if they do not want to have CPR, which as we get older, as we're older than 70, as we accumulate medical problems, as we have severe underlying diseases that we know cannot be cured, like heart failure, COPD, dementia, it oftentimes does make sense to have a do not resuscitate order. But then 
in that category, you have to talk about whether what um, what quality of life means to the person. So how much do they value quality of life versus the length of their life? Would they be okay with trialing treatments that would prolong their life artificially? And which of those treatments would they be okay with? So in the full treatment group in the first category, people can still value their quality of life over the length of their life. But at that point, they have such a good quality of life that they're willing to even have CPR, that they're willing to, like these people are usually very early on in dementia. You might not even know they have dementia. So they may be okay with having maximal medical treatment, but at some point they may wanna drop down into some, but not all um, if their quality of life worsens. And that's important work to do ahead of time. Um, so full treatment, some, but not all. And then the third group is comfort care. So the third goal of care is comfort. And that does not mean no care. And that's a common misconception. It means that every treatment, every medicine that they're on, every procedure that they might have, even surgery that they might have, because people can have surgery if they're in comfort care. One example would be if someone fell and fractured their hip, that is incredibly painful. If that person was walking around prior, they could have a hip fracture repair just for comfort. And that would be the intention behind that treatment. So when someone has a goal of comfort, every treatment that we do to them, every intervention should have a goal of providing comfort, not of extending their life. So the where I see people needing very specific planning is in the full treatment and in the some but not all group and somewhat in comfort as well. Um, you, you just There's a lot that you have to learn to know um, which exact treatment someone would be okay with and not. Um, but those are the three goals of care categories. And so people living earlier in dementia with, can be full treatment. A lot of them are some but not all treatment because they don't want to have CPR. Some people, once they're diagnosed with dementia, they say right away, I don't want any treatment that's going to prolong my life. If I become very, very sick and I need like to be in, in the intensive care unit and be having, you know, all this, all this treatment to support my organs because they're not working, my breathing's not working. I don't want any of that. I, I, any treatment I have, I want focused on comfort. And so it, it really depends on what someone's value of quality of life is. How much do they value that over the value of the length of their life? That work has to be done in order to determine what their goals of care are. That's, that's great. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. So um, believe it or not, I, I'm kind of surprised by this, but a lot of people that we talk to and a lot of families, they get like a blank look on your face when we, when we talk about a medical care plan. Um, it's, you know, so a medical care plan is, can be a plan designed by our family, right? Like we've talked to the physician and this is what the plan would be. But also from your perspective, you can create a medical care plan for your patient, correct? Yeah. So basically the way that I, this, this concept is not, I don't think that this is really being done because I don't see this. I never see anyone come in with a medical care plan. You know, I know geriatric care managers are out there helping people navigate this. People hire them to help them. I know people are going to their doctor and talking about what care they do and do not want. But what I'm teaching people to do is create, to look at someone as a whole and to list out all the medical issues that they're, all the conditions that they're at risk for. And they could just be simply because they have dementia. 
We know that people who have dementia are at risk of falling and having all different types of injuries, bleeding in the brain, hip fractures, arm fractures, rib fractures. These all create different medical scenarios that you can that you can think about and plan for. The other thing is infections. So we know urinary tract infections, pneumonia, people have difficulty swallowing and then have aspiration. So an aspiration pneumonia. So and then whatever their whatever their underlying medical issues are, they you list all this stuff out. You list out everything that they're at risk for. And then you learn how those things are treated. And then you create a plan for what you're gonna do with treatments based on the way they're living now and, and how they would be living in the future with their quality of life. And so it, it's very extensive. I can I do this with people individually, but I also teach people how to do it in a course so that they can. The thing is, you have to learn these medical issues. You've got to learn the basics of the medical issues and how they're treated in order to create this type of plan. You can do this on behalf of the person with dementia if they're no longer able to make their own medical decisions and you would be their medical decision maker. And a family could sit down and do this together if they could come on the if they could get onto the same page. I know there's a lot of issues with family dynamics, but a family can do this. You could also do this early on with the person who has dementia, depending on how how much they're still able to sit down and, and learn all these things. So um, it's a little bit different than the problem is that you cannot go to a doctor's office and, and do this type of planning because there's not enough time in order to in order to teach someone and have them be informed so that they can make an informed choice. There's there's education that you need to have. And it's not rocket science. It's easy to explain to people why people get urinary tract infections, the important things that we need to do when someone has one, how they become critically ill with them and what what sepsis looks like. Like, how do we treat sepsis? It, it's not there's not that much stuff that you need to learn. It's just a little bit of time that you have to sit down and become educated. So my my version of medical care planning is is in a, is in addition to advanced directives because that's a legal document. This is a plan that you would be able to reference when you are in a situation and you have to make a decision for your person. Sean, we need. I feel like I need to like tonight start working on my oh, own plan. I, I'm yeah. That's all I'm thinking about right now. Is we we talk I still about, haven't got know, my talk- wills finalized, so I guess I should get that done first, and then I. Uh, but. Um, yeah, this is super. I, th- I think this is really super important. I mean, obviously, we're focused on this conversation on dementia and Alzheimer's, but I just think that when you get to a certain age, you got to be thinking about this stuff all the time, you know, and or not all the time, but you need to be thinking ahead. And when you say that, you know, 70 is the number that really freaks me out because. I'm pretty close to getting there. I say like, 70 because there's been literature that showed that at that age, CPR is less effective. And I and I have a whole conversation in my course about CPR and like why we do it and when it works and when it doesn't and the things that you need to think about. But there's a secondary gain here that I have when I when I do this education. And what's what what I can hear from you all is that you're picking up on the secondary gain and is that in educating you on how to make decisions for your person with dementia, I'm also educating you on how you can plan for yourself. And so it's kind of, I mean, killing two birds with one stone, for lack of a better, for better term. I, I well, that's a, that's a bad pun, killing two birds with one stone. Well, I think what's interesting about this, having gone through the process with with our father and our parents and moving them, you know, several times. Um, 
you know, I know Michelle and I have had lots of conversations like after the first move, when they moved from their home of 20 years to Texas, we just kind of looked at each other and like, we cannot do this to our kids, right? So what's our, you know, and I've been thinking about this, like, what's my plan when I hit a certain age to basically jettison all the stuff I have, in, all the crap I have in my life. So I don't have to put the onus on my kids to go through my house and argue with me about the stupidest things. So, and this is in that same vein, like, is, you know, what can we do to, for ourselves and also for, you know, our future caregivers and my kids, I want my kids to be able to, you know, make decisions for me and make informed decisions based on, and not put the pressure on them. You know, same thing with estate planning, you know, of going to your parents saying, look, help me with what you want to do with your estate, because I don't want to be arguing with people after you pass away over money. You know, tell me what your intentions are. So all this planning is good for us in the now if we're caring for somebody, but it's also good for us as we age and, and the people who are going to be supporting us doing a favor for them. Yeah. And I think the big, the big tie in is how to potentially create your own medical care plan and insert that into your advanced directive documentation. And if you brought this to an attorney, I'm not sure how comfortable they would be with that, which is why I really teach people that this planning is for the person making decisions and a conversation is, is worth so much more than a piece of paper. So if you do this planning and you talk with your family about it, they can make decisions for you. You know, they can, and it's, it's best if you have a medical power of attorney document. Um, and it's best if everyone's kind of aware of this, that it exists. Um, and that, you know, trying to get on the same page with anyone who loves the person with dementia or loves you, you know, that wants to be involved, trying to get people to understand that this is important to do ahead of time. So, well, I think it's important, you know, especially making sure that everybody is respecting the wishes of, of the person going through this. Right. And, yeah, you know, especially when, and I'm going to ask you about this in a second, but the, the lead in is. Uh, you know, when you have, especially with several adult children, you know, they may have very different ideas on what should happen, you know, because of their feelings towards something, whether they believe in something, don't believe in something, think it's the best interest. And it may be, may be opposite of what, you know, the person, you know, who might be being cared for would want, but they can't speak for themselves. Right. So yes. this idea of a medical plan, I think is great because, if you have the if you have the medical directive and then and you appointed somebody as the medical you know power attorney a medical power attorney then they can go to this document and say look you know i i don't have to make this up because they already said what what, what they want to do for certain things that probably would have afflicted them and i'm just going to do what they want me to do right and I can make yeah. the decision. So great. So that goes back yeah. to that goes to my next question, which is about roles, right? Uh, and, and I, I kind of refer to that, like especially with adult children. And you know, you, you say that you know one of your key points is that everybody knows their role, um, and it's this is just so critical, especially in families with multiple adult children, you know, because they all have different perspectives on things. So. Um, how how important to, is this to you around knowing their role and 
everyone kind of knowing their place in this process? Yeah, I think it's incredibly important and it's really challenging. Uh, and I think that a lot of the nuance and decisions will have to be done as individuals with families based on the dynamics that they have. But when I talk about caregivers making making medical decisions and knowing their role, it's that, you know, you have to realize that you may, you may have people that are not going to agree with you, but that if you're always making decisions that are in the best interest of that person with dementia, that you're speaking on their behalf, you're doing your job. It is, to me, this is a job. It's a duty. It's a huge responsibility. And if, if you don't kind of own that and take ownership of that, you could allow other people to influence your decisions. And you may make decisions that you know your person wouldn't want because you're not, you're not willing or you're not able to kind of step up and say, no, I, this is my role. This is my duty. And this is what, what this person wants. Like we, we may, we may or may not have talked about it. And that's the issue that I find with dementia is that a lot of times people get involved and there was never a conversation that was had. And so people don't really know what the person would want. And so you're having multiple family members try to figure that out together. And so the, the sooner you can have these conversations and not have them in the emergency department or when someone's critically ill, because like we've said, you just can't make the best decisions for people when you're under stress. Everyone in the family, if they could come together and say, all right, this is the person that's going to make medical decisions. This person has a legal right to make medical decisions, the spouse, a child. We are going to together as a team support this person and come up with a plan. Um, and there's different, I mean, there's other roles that you can have as a family. Someone could be the financial person. Someone could be the person that communicates with staff in different facilities or a caregiver that's coming in and out of the home. I think giving people responsibility that want it and not taking all the burden on the person who's having to make medical decisions or the day-to-day -day caregiver is important. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it if, if at all possible, in advance, people need to figure out the plan and communicate it so that everyone understands why you're making the decisions that you're making in the moment. It's like, we've talked about this. This is what we've decided to do. And then when something happens, we'll remember, this is why we're doing this. This is the reason behind the decision that I made. And I think if people are in a situation where their family members can't get on the same page and they are the medical decision maker, Doing this type of planning gives you the confidence to say, this is why I chose what I did, because I have all this education and knowledge. I made an informed choice and you, you know, you didn't, you didn't know, you didn't have access to that information, but this is why I did it. So for families that have struggles, I also think planning can help from like a, um, even almost a mental health standpoint from the caregiver. So I think it's challenging to talk about roles because it's going to be so individualized per family and whatever situation they have going on with their dynamics. But the key is that you try to set one person, you know, that you have one person who's in charge, who is a medical decision maker. Yep. You know, I think what gets that other layer, one other layer, and we probably don't even have time to go down this route, but you know, it's the emotion that happens. Like you have adult children who have, maybe they've heard their parents say, I do not want to live like this. I do, you know, we heard this with our dad, you know, but when it comes time and the end is approaching, some people have more trouble letting go than others, you know? And so the idea like, no, I'm not ready to lose my dad. I'm not ready to lose my mom. And so they begin to act on emotion 
forgetting about the wishes of their parent, right? And we see it all the time. We see it all the time. See it and, all the time. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I bet. I think see it a hundred times over. I see it almost every day, which is another reason why I've come into this space because I see that struggle that people have and I see them making emotional decisions. And I see and I feel that if they had the information that I'm trying to teach people ahead of time, then they would understand what's going on medically. Because a lot of times it's just we forget. You know, my dad had brain cancer. He passed away very young. And you've you're so emotional about the way the person is and that they're suffering and how they look and you forget that like this disease it's normal like what is happening to this person is expected it is natural we cannot reverse it and so but but it, it is it's, it's incredibly challenging to watch someone go through and decline from dementia and then remind yourself that you need to speak on their behalf and always keep what they would want in your mind and that is why i'll just put a little bug in here when you choose your medical power of attorney, like you were talking about your kids that have different wishes, you need to you need to have a discussion with whoever you want to be your medical power of attorney and, and make sure that they understand they're going to have to make a tough choice. Do they have the resilience, the grit to be able to do that, to always speak and say what you would want and be able to stand up to the other people that may be disagreeing with that and tell them, no, no, remember, I'm making this decision because this is what dad wanted. This is what mom wanted. And they communicated that with me and telling them ahead of time that that's what we're going to do. That way, when people who have different opinions will at least go, oh, yeah, I mean, they did tell me that that, that was the plan. So I, I was aware of it, even though it's incredibly challenging. So who you choose as your medical power of attorney is incredibly important. It does not have to be your spouse. It doesn't have to be a child. It, can, it doesn't have to be someone you're blood related to. You know, it should be someone likely that's logistically close to you that knows your situation. Um, maybe someone that's younger than you. Um, and you should have a backup, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, Brittany, we're going to do a couple of webinars with you later in the fall where we're going to, you know, allow people to kind of work through your program. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I'm, I'm excited about that. And because, this is not part of your medical practice. You can help caregivers across the country. It doesn't matter where they're geographically located. So I want people to make sure, you know, that they, they know they don't have to be in Virginia or in particular in Loudoun County. Um, but can you tell us how, do, how do people contact you if they want to reach out? Yeah. So, um, I'm on social media, so I would recommend that you, if you're interested in help with navigating medical decisions for your person living with dementia, I would recommend that you come and join my Facebook group. Um, it's it's a community that uh, caregivers are in. It's it's free. You just come and join it. Um, that's one way that you can work with me. Another way, I'm on Instagram at it's blam.md, and I put out videos on there and posts that give out educational information. And I also talk about what I have going on sometimes in the Facebook community there. So that's a way to kind of see me and follow me. Um, you can get my free five-step audio training from my website, which is www.blammd.com. And that website also has um, ways to get in touch with me if you're interested in booking a phone consultation with me. So I, I help caregivers make a medical care plan uh, for their person specifically. It takes multi It's going to take multiple phone conversations, and it depends on how extensive someone's past medical history is. 
Um, and then also you can find information on there about my course. And there's links on the website to um, set up a phone call to get that process started. And then also to get information about the course if you're wanting to join that. So that's the website and Facebook and Instagram are the big things. Yeah, we'll make sure we put all those links in the show notes here. So you don't, if you're listening to this, <laughs> you can just go to the go to the your favorite podcasting platform and get see the show notes. So, so Brittany, we have so much more to talk to you about. Um, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I have action items now. Um, I'm definitely <laughs> registering for your webinar coming up with us. Um, and uh, so we want to continue this conversation and follow up podcast. So thank you for joining us today. And we look forward to a second part of this podcast on planning for unexpected emergencies as a caregiver with someone with dementia. So thank you very much for being, uh, being on our podcast super informative and uh, I, I i appreciate all the work that you're doing because having gone through this process everything that you say resonates with us thanks for having me i'm so glad to be here i'm happy to help out yes thank you so much